Alrighty, welcome back. Financial Guys Podcast here on the Financial Guys Media Network. Exclusive interview today. I am lucky and fortunate to be sitting down with U.S. Army Colonel Douglas McGregor. Going to spend about a half hour, 45 minutes with us to talk about a lot of things. First off, Colonel, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Sure. So I want to start with a quick timeline, and then we'll get into some of your experience in a little bit. But let's start with a quick timeline. So when when Trump was in president, was the president for four years, he did not start one single war in those four years. And apparently that's a pretty good feat for a president of our country. What do you think it was? Was it just coincidence? Was it the world respected us? Were we in good standing with the rest of the world? Was it good leadership? Why did we not have a war under Donald Trump? I would say it's actually more than what you're uh, suggesting. <clears throat> he did not simply uh, decline to start any new wars. He spent most of his time trying to shut down the wars that were already in progress. <clears throat> when he came in, he was he was very surprised at the huge numbers of U.S. forces overseas. And remember that uh, he said he would do everything in his power to terminate ISIS. And he did that. As quickly and as expeditiously he could, as he could. Now he did more slowly than many people liked, but we were trying to avoid unnecessary civilian casualties. And also your audience ought to remember that the Russians were involved helping us uh, and supported the destruction of ISIS as well and were helpful in containing Mr. Erdogan, who was ultimately behind ISIS. So it was a difficult situation. He managed that very well, and then he drew down forces. He ultimately wanted to get all of our forces out of Syria and Iraq, but he was uh, subverted at every turn. And I think that's what needs to be borne in mind about the Trump presidency, that President Trump, though he became president of the United States, really had no support from the federal bureaucracy. And worse, most of the people that he appointed on the basis of recommendations that came from people like uh, former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, uh, of all people and others, uh, turned out to be terrible. They they were actively obstructing any change in our foreign and defense policy. So at the end of four years, he, yes, he avoided break, uh, the outbreak of any more wars, and he was instrumental in stopping, I, I would say, the war machine from going at uh, Iran. If he had not been president at the time, I rather suspect we would have ended up in a war with Iran. But he was unsuccessful at shutting everything down. And that's what he was trying to do during the 70 or 80 days that I was with him at the end. He wanted to get the troops out of Syria, out of Iraq. He also wanted to get out of Afghanistan. And the reason for that was that he knew that the best time to extricate our forces from Afghanistan was during the winter. Well, that's when uh, the, the, Afghanistan is a strange place. It's one of these places that actually has a quote-unquote fighting season. You know, you have too many snows in the mountains and the mountain passes for these people to operate effectively against you, which meant that that's a good time to get out. All of that, of course, collapsed because he ran out of time. And again, he was continually uh, obstructed by people in uniform inside the Department of Defense, as well as in the State Department and on the Hill. I'm going to get into the war machine a little bit later because I want to talk about Adam Kinzinger and even Lindsey Graham and his comments recently. But in terms of let's go into Afghanistan, because I think that that was the next thing mm-hmm. on my timeline here. So we, we see Trump leave the White House. We see Biden come into the White House. And within a year or two, he like you said, Trump was looking to get out of there. Biden ends up getting out of there. But his execution and his strategy and I'm not in the military, so I'm just speaking of what I think. Um, did not seem to be the best strategy and the best execution that we, we could have had there. And obviously it cost some of our military members their lives, and it cost a lot of people, you know, a lot of money for our military, too. We left weaponry there. What, what do you think about Joe Biden's removal of troops and, and, and leaving of Afghanistan? Well, again, leaving was the right thing to do. The question uh, was always when do you do it and how do you do it? Leaving in the middle of the summer, which is at the center of the fighting season, is probably not a good idea. In fact, we know it's not a good idea, and that's one of the reasons we never did it. So that was a a huge strategic error. Had he waited a few more months for the winter to set in and then made the decision to withdraw, I think it would have turned out a little bit better. Second part is that uh, he was not prepared, prepared to withdraw those forces. What I'm saying is that the military had been told to consider it. They had been told to look at it, but I don't think the top uh, military leaders ever did. I think they assumed 
whatever happened, we would be in Afghanistan for many more years. And as a result, when the time came and he finally said, enough's enough, I want to get out, we really hadn't systematically planned it down to the last detail, with the result that you saw a great deal of chaos. And then you had some people in charge who, in my judgment, simply weren't competent. And you, the 82nd Airborne commander, I think, was the man on the ground. And if you look at the way he set up the forces on the way out, uh, it, it was begging for trouble. We were too close to too many people that we could not control. And then finally, I think he picked the wrong place to withdraw from. You don't withdraw from Kabul airport. Uh, we could have gotten out through Bagram for the most part. We could have still retained Bagram, frankly. Uh, but we, we did it in such a way that we attracted all the wrong kind of attention. So, you know, listen, it was a disaster. And by the way, no one's ever been held accountable for it. Why do you think he pulled the trigger when he did? Was it, was it fear? Was it nerves? Was it bad, you know, advice? What, what was it that he chose that time and that airport and that place to do it? You know, <clears throat> I can't, I can't tell you with that absolute specificity. I can say that. President Biden, when he was vice president, was an advocate for getting out. Uh, president Biden was also an advocate for leaving Iraq uh, through some solution, whether it was territorial or political. So I think he, he finally talked to his uh, advisors and said, well, listen, this is enough. Uh, there's no benefit anymore. Let's just leave. And, of course, that's what happened in Vietnam. You know, we suddenly left. And you saw what happened in Vietnam with aircraft flying off the roof of the American embassy, people hanging on to the aircraft. We had people hanging on to the aircraft in Kabul. Neither of these withdrawals were necessarily well planned. So my assumption is that someone at the top, probably the president, simply said, that's it, I want out, tell them to pull out. Then we get into, obviously, the the Russia-Ukraine situation that's been going on for almost 18 months now we're at. Um, Why do you believe this started when it did? And I know you're not in the Russian military or the the, uh, Russian palace there, but why do you think think he chose Putin to go in when he did? You know, I think there were several reasons. First of all, during the preceding 15 years, He had spoken uh, at various meetings uh, going all the way back to 2004, 2005 about Russia's security situation. He reminded everyone that we had given our solemn promise that we would not exploit the withdrawal of Soviet forces from Eastern Europe to move NATO further east. Now, that that's the start point. And obviously, that was true. And in 2000, when we admitted Poland... Uh, that was that was the beginning of what the Soviet or the Russians at the time thought was this sort of unstoppable wave of NATO military power moving towards their border. In 2008, there was a vote, and there were several people, including uh, the German Chancellor at the time, Angela Merkel, who raised questions about the vote as to whether or not to bring in uh, Ukraine in the future, and. Uh, she was overruled, uh, even though privately she said, look, you know, Ukraine is not Poland. Ukraine is not Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. Ukraine is enormous in size. It's a large population, large scientific industrial base. It's left over from the Soviet era. Whatever happens in Ukraine is an existential question for Russia. Russia does not want a hostile country of uh, 35 million people sitting on its border with all of these potential capabilities emerging. But no one would listen, and we decided we're going to go ahead and do it. Then at the same time, you you know, shortly thereafter, you had this coup that was uh, executed in 2014 where people from Washington, working closely with the CIA and others, managed to install a new Ukrainian government to throw out what was a legitimately elected uh, leader. That resulted in this uh, sort of radical nationalist party taking over in Ukraine, which is beholden to us. We then began selecting leaders. And it was also at the same time when the Ukrainians decided to attack the people living in the east, in Donetsk and Luhansk, these two provinces, on the grounds that they were not playing ball with Ukraine. And indeed, they were not. One of the reasons we ended up with the Minsk Accords was to address their grievances. And their grievances were very simple. We don't want to be treated like second or third classes uh, citizens inside Ukraine simply because we're Russians. You know, we, we'll live in Ukraine. We'll do whatever is required. But 
You're asking us to abandon uh, Russian language. You don't want us to have our own schools. You don't want the Russian Orthodox Church here. You just go down the list. And they said, you know, we're we're always low man on the totem pole. We're being abused. So the Minsk Accords were drawn up to deal with that. And at the same time, you had this undeclared war that Ukraine launched against Luhansk and Donetsk that went on. By the time he finally decides to go in in February of 2022, uh, I think they'd lost over 14,000 people killed, most of them civilians uh, killed by random artillery strikes in various towns and cities in eastern Ukraine. And I think the reason he finally decided to go in is that he was absolutely convinced that we were inevitably going to deploy missiles, uh, missiles like the Aegis missile system that we put into uh, Poland and into Romania that would threaten Russia's nuclear deterrent, changing, changing the balance of power in a, in a very dangerous way. Instead of flight times uh, taking, you know, 45 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, two hours, suddenly they were reduced to three or four minutes. This is something that he wasn't going to tolerate. He also saw that this Ukrainian army was being built up with enormous funds from the West, lots of good equipment, enormous amount of training invested, and this was creating a force on his border that had only one purpose. That was to attack to the east, not only to seize Luhansk and seize uh, Donetsk, the two so-called breakaway republics, but also to retake control of Crimea. Crimea was a place that the, the Russians feared we would inevitably anchor U.S. warships. And he wasn't prepared to see the United States take over the Black Sea. Again, all of these factors were in the back of his mind. And he, he then said, well, let's go, let's, let's submit some uh, new proposals to reexamine the security framework in Europe, which we would not even consider. And uh, when he figured out that we weren't going to talk to him, he said, the only thing I can do to demonstrate the seriousness of the situation is to use military power. And so he decides to intervene in February of 2022. So we've obviously spent tens of billions, meaning America has spent tens of billions. You have people like Tucker Carlson this week said it's a never-ending conflict. Um, you, you know, you have your Twitter people that have, you know, the Ukrainian flag in their bios and they're constantly pushing this war nonstop. You have people like Adam Kinzinger doing the same thing. Do you agree to keep spending tens of billions there? Well, of course not. I, yeah. I stop and consider something for a minute. Here's President Biden. If you go back to uh, February, March, April of last year and the statements that were made at that point, several things were stated. We will not send uh, weapon systems with ranges that could threaten Russia. In other words, we're not going to provide missiles and rockets that uh, reach beyond the border of uh, Ukraine into Russia itself. We will not provide tanks. We will not provide new aircraft, F-16s, F-15s. Uh, we will not provide, you know, just go down the list, all the things we would not provide. As the Ukrainians took heavier and heavier casualties, and everybody wants to debate this because there's so much lying about what's really happened in Ukraine. People don't know the truth. They can't, they can't even fathom that at least 300,000 Ukrainians have been killed, probably closer to 350,000. We just don't know, but we know at least 300,000 are dead. Add to that, what, two, three, four hundred thousand casualties beyond that wounded, most of whom will never return to action. These are enormous numbers. We just don't know, but we know the hospitals are full. We know the graveyards are filled, so we can track these kinds of things. We know that at least 300,000 Ukrainians have died. On the Russian side, depends upon whom you want to talk to, their losses are anywhere from twenty to 50,000, of which maybe twenty to 30,000 have been killed. So their, their losses have always been much lower, and they continue to drop. The exchange rate is usually 1 to 8 or 1 to 5 uh, in any pitched battle between the Russians and the Ukrainians. So the Ukrainians are losing. Some would say they've lost. They're they're at the point now where they could not put up a serious defense if the Russians decided to launch an offensive. As a result, Zelensky and his crew, uh, which is essentially a puppet government of the United States, is now desperate and will grasp at anything. And so we because we don't care to admit that we've made terrible errors in judgment, ter- terrible errors in our strategic thinking, 
have decided, well, we'll throw anything we've got left at them. And you come to this cluster munition business. And one, at least one source, I think it was uh, Ritter, who suggested that the reason we want to send the cluster munitions in uh, 155 millimeter uh, guns is very simple. We have no more conventional ammunition to send for artillery. That may be true. I don't know. But the bottom line is that we have been opposed to the use of cluster munitions for years now. I saw them used in 1991. They were fired in support of me. The dud rate was very high. It, it ultimately was not useful to us. And the, the people that it attacks, in other words, the, the things that suffer from cluster munitions are soft targets, trucks and people. If you're in an armored fighting vehicle, it's not going to make any difference to you. So the real question is, why are we doing it? It's all desperation. And the more desperate Zelensky becomes, it seems that his desperation also applies to the White House and the Hill. So we're we're willing to continue to throw anything we've got at them in the hope that miraculously something will improve. And each day is worse. Nothing's going to improve. The war is lost. I will say, I mean, I had not heard those exact numbers that you just talked about, that that's frightening, because if you watch the news, and I'm sure you do, right, you would think that this is a, a dead even war or or Russia's actually losing, right? I mean, that's what they tell you, that there's Russian planes getting shot down left, right, and center. That's what they tell you. Those numbers you just gave are not even close to even, and you, like you said, it might be over. I guess my question then is, when and how does the conflict actually end? Because right now, as much as it might be over, we're still funding, you know, everything we can over there. Other countries in Europe are doing the same. When does it actually end and how does it actually end? I think that question is being asked right now inside the Kremlin in Moscow. Uh, I think Mr. Putin has asked that question and so have his advisors. We've made it clear that uh, short of publicly committing suicide and then unilaterally withdrawing all forces from what was formerly inside Ukraine, uh there's nothing that the Russians can do to satisfy us. In other words, we, we've become their implacable enemy. And we've made it clear that it's uh, effectively, from their standpoint, uh, total surrender, or we will continue to support whatever is left for as long as we can. That, for the Russians, that's very simple. They're, they're, if that's the case, and there is no hope for any negotiated settlement whatsoever, then they have to face the reality that they will have to march all the way to the Polish border because they're trying to secure themselves against the threat that I mentioned earlier. They don't want Ukraine in any way, shape, or form to become a platform for attack against Russia. They don't want to wake up and find out that we've placed missile systems in Ukraine the way, as you'll recall, the Soviets put missiles into Cuba. That's what they do not want, will not tolerate. And, of course, you have the other ugly feature of this whole thing, which is this radical nationalism in the form of neo-Nazis that have sprung up in Ukraine. That, of course, that, of course, raises the specter of all sorts of nightmares in the minds of the Russians. None of it is help, is helpful to put an end to this thing. So I think at this point, they're going to watch what happens in Vilnius, which is where they're, where the NATO leadership is holding a, a meeting. See what comes out of it. See what they say. Now, the good news for the Russians is that the United Kingdom, Germany, I think Spain, and several others are now saying, well, wait a minute, we don't support the use of cluster munitions. They're pointing essentially to our hypocrisy. We've always accused the opponent of doing terrible things, when in reality, we were the ones doing them. That's an old American habit that goes all the way back to Vietnam. So I think I think the uh, Russians are waiting to see if if the meeting in Vilnius produces anything of value before they finally pull the trigger and launch. Because they have, at this point, they're in a very strong position. They have the strategic initiative. Time is on their side. Ukrainians are running out of manpower. I have friends in Germany that I talk to, and they tell me the trains are arriving virtually every day with more Ukrainian refugees, including large numbers of young men who are coming across to escape military service. They now have press gangs operating in the west of the country all the way up to the Carpathian Mountains in what used to be called the Western Military District in western Ukraine, and they're not getting a good reception from the Ukrainians there. They don't want to fight. They see this as a lost cause. And the brutality meted out to the population by the Ukrainian secret police is phenomenal. So Ukraine has become as close to a Stalinist state as we've seen certainly since uh, the 1960s or 50s. 
And that's not what we went in to do, I think. It's not something that we want. But you have a group of people in in Washington who have developed this uh, irrational hatred of all things Russian, which makes no sense, frankly, to me. It shouldn't make sense to any American. But I think that's where we are. What did you make of the, uh, I'll call it the coup of a couple weeks ago with the, uh, with the Wagner group going in there? Did you, do you, I mean, what, what, for, for those out there that don't really know what that was all about, can you give a quick two minute explanation on that? And if it was BS or not? Well, uh, Prigozhin, who is this, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin is a man that has been a restaurateur in Moscow for years. So he's on a very uh, close personal relationship with both, uh, Lukashenko and, and Belarus, as well as Putin and others. I mean, they know each other. I don't know how close that relationship was with President Putin, but he's tied into the ruling elite, let's put it that way. And he set out to build this uh, organization that would go overseas and operate uh, essentially as a special forces, special operations forces entity that could train or execute missions overseas for the Russians in the same sense that we use special forces and special operations to do things for us. Now, <clears throat> the rub was always the following. There there are laws on the books in Russia that say uh, private military organizations like Wagner, Wagner's not the only one, by the way, cannot operate anywhere but beyond the borders of Russia. In other words, you can't use them at home. They're much like the French Foreign Legion. Yep. Technically, the French Foreign Legion is always outside of metropolitan France. It has a base in, out near Marseille, but otherwise it's outside of France. And only in times of extreme emergency or stress does the French Foreign Legion return home. Well, the war initially was something that I don't think anyone in the Kremlin, certainly not President Putin, anticipated. I think he thought that once he used the relatively few forces that he sent into Ukraine, he would send a signal that he was serious. We would immediately say, stop, let's hold talks. The opposite happened. So Prigozhin said, send us in. You know, and he built up this force of almost 25,000. And uh, they went in and they performed brilliantly. They really have. If you listen to the radio transmissions, uh, the Ukrainians and the Pol- Polish forces that are inside Ukraine operating as part of the Ukrainian army always refer to the Wagner troops as the musicians and uh, talk about the mu- musicians are here. This is what the musicians are doing. And to be blunt, they were very, very effective. Now, in time, Prigozhin became angry because he didn't think that uh, he and his force was getting enough recognition. He didn't think he and his force was adequately supported by uh, Garazimov and uh, to a lesser extent, I think, Shogu, who is the defense minister. This became a personal feud between him and them. But I also think he recognized that he had a message that resonated strongly with the, the Russian public. And the message was, look, we've got too many old men as generals at the top. We need to get this done. We need to fight this war the way it has to be fought and win it and get it over with. The Russian population feels very strongly that he's right. And so he said, well, I, you know, how do I get to Putin? And the only way I can get to the President Putin, get him to listen to me, is that I've got to uh, go to go to Moscow. So he decided to uh, pull his forces, which were already sitting in reserve. They were no longer in contact moved them down to Rostov, and then from Rostov, he put about three or 4,000 on the road to head to Moscow. Well, it was perceived initially as this threatening move that could, could be designed to unseat Putin, which, of course, is nonsense. That's an impossibility. And Prigozhin wasn't interested in unseating Putin. He was interested in getting Putin's attention because he really wants to get rid of Gerasimov and Shogu. It all fell apart very, very quickly. As soon as Putin said, that's it, I won't tolerate it, there was a clash between uh, his organization and the Russian Air Force. About 12 Russians were killed, which he deeply regretted. He immediately said, cease, cease all operations. He has since seen President Putin in private. Uh, Putin met with him along with 34 of his officers. Very lengthy three-hour discussion, and I think they ironed out their differences. The point is that Wagner as an organization is effective. Uh, this, this is a first-class military organization of assault infantry. 
highly skilled, particularly in urban operations and digging the enemy out of his fortifications. Russia needs them. So they're, they're going to appear again. They are not yet in Belarusia. Uh, they are actually at this point, I think in Luhansk, but uh, accommodations for them are being built in Belarusia. And in the meantime, Prigozhin has been spending most of his time in St. Petersburg. But Prigozhin is certainly not on his way to the Lubyanka prison, and he's certainly not scheduled to be hanged. And there was no serious uprising or threat to Putin's power. All of those things are extremely disappointing to everyone in the West, obviously. So, so let me ask that because I'm, I'm smirking over here because, you know, again, I, I'm not Adam Kinzinger and I are not fans of each other on Twitter. And I'm, I'm laughing because if you knew, you know, if you, he, he was in the military too, which I, I respect anyone in our military, whether I agree with you or not. He is, 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 was so big on the fact that, you know what, this, this is it. This is the end of the Russian empire. It's over. They're turning on each other. Why lie? He probably knows what you just said. Why lie like that? He may not. Uh, so much of the wishful thinking has been translated in, in people's minds into reality that I think it's very difficult for many people to distinguish what's real from what isn't. So I'm, I, I would consider the possibility that he really doesn't know. And you've got all sorts of so-called Russian experts who hate Russia, and they're yep. constantly feeding the press the same kind of disinformation. The Russians are incompetent. The Russians can't do anything. The Russians are falling apart. The Russians don't want to fight, and on and on and on. In fact, the opposite, of course, is true, and we've seen a dramatic, dramatic change in the Russian army. I mean, this thing has gone from a little over 200,000 to up up to 750,000. It's continuing to quietly mobilize individuals. Uh, Just a few days ago, I received a phone call from someone who'd come back and talked about men who were in colleges and universities and technical institutes who were supposed to be there for four years, who were suddenly informed you're being mobilized, you're in the reserves. So this mobilization is not being conducted on a national basis for everybody, but it still continues. And the quality and the capability of the armed forces has risen dramatically. These are the same people that thought, well, you know, the Russians will run out of uh, shells and ammunition. The Russians won't be able to won't be able to sustain this. The Russians are going to be isolated. All of that's failed. We failed miserably trying to isolate them. We forgot that they're practically self-sufficient when it comes to resources and food Mm -hmm. and that they have a, a, a market that is almost infinite for their products, whether it's oil and gas or minerals and other things, as well as grain and wheat. In fact, one of the things nobody's talking about is the high probability, I would say, over the next 12 months of famines breaking out in various places of the world, in the Middle East and in Africa, because people cannot get access to the food thanks to this war. That's how important Ukraine and Russia are to the rest of the world. So I think Kinsier and the rest were so anxious to see something good happen for the Ukrainians that they rushed to to embrace something that was absolute nonsense. And this is where we sit now. Do you agree, disagree, not so sure on Donald Trump saying he could end this war in 24 to 48 hours? <laughs> Do you agree with that? I mean, I think his, his, in my opinion, his political standing and his power, maybe, I don't know, it'd be 24 hours, but I think he could do it fairly quickly. Do you agree with that? Well, I know the president and, you know, I have a great deal of affection for him, think very highly of President Trump. And I know that President Trump is very sincere about ending it. You know, saying I can stop it in 24 hours, uh, that's it's hard to tell. I mean, obviously, he could walk in and say, I want an immediate ceasefire. Would the Ukrainians go along with it? Well, they might when you tell them that they're no longer going to be supplied with ammunition and weapons. And I think that's the first thing that he would do. He would stop that supply uh, system from operating. Then I think he would order all U.S. personnel out of Ukraine. And we've got a lot of people in Ukraine right now that nobody talks about that are there to train and assist. They're part of headquarters from, quote, unquote, NATO uh, that are on the ground. We've had a number of people killed over there that nobody is talking about that have been kept concealed from the public, he would end all that. And I think if he made that very clear and the Russians saw that happen in 48 to 72 hours, then I think they would absolutely sit down and talk to us. Uh, whether or not the Ukrainians would participate in that, I'm talking about the Ukrainian government now under right. Zelensky, I don't know. 
So I, I do want to go one more thing on this topic, and I'm going to jump into a couple other things. I guess it's it's partly about this topic, but we talked about Taiwan, um, or we haven't talked about Taiwan, but our government has, and they they treat Taiwan a little bit differently than they treat Ukraine. Why is that for people that don't understand? Well, in terms of China all, going think, in, you know, yeah. Well, I I regard Taiwan as uh, something that's not of any vital strategic interest whatsoever to the United States from the standpoint that it's not a place we should fight to defend. Yeah. Uh, I've never accepted that view. It's This is an island off the coast of China. It's got about 100 miles of water between China and it. The key thing about Taiwan, of course, for many people, is this micro-circuitry that is created there, which is essential to the Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, us, even Europeans. It's a very high-end manufacturing. We should have that in the United States. By the way, when Trump was president, he was trying very hard to uh, install a factory in Arizona that was essentially a branch of the one on Taiwan that produces this very sensitive microcircuitry. He was clearly aware of that, the importance of that. But I think there's this assumption that the Chinese are building themselves up for a major military assault, and there's no evidence for that. The Chinese are very powerful, but they're not fools. They know it's 100 miles of water. They also know that as soon as they take direct action against Taiwan, they will probably lose the support of everyone in Asia because everyone in Asia will be horrified. And then finally, they know they don't have to fight for Taiwan. Why not? Because there are two political parties on Taiwan. There is one that is pro-Japanese, and that's the one that is in power. That is the party that has been courting us trying to drag us in to in their defense. And then there is the KMT. This is Chiang Kai-shek's old party. Chiang Kai-shek was the Chinese general that led his nationalist forces to Taiwan when they lost the war with the communists back in 1948-49. That party is the pro-Beijing party now because the Chinese, most of the Chinese on Taiwan and the Chinese inside China both want the same thing. They both want to live in a social structure that in many respects mirrors Singapore. Now, for your, the audience doesn't know much about Asia, doesn't know much about Singapore. Uh, Americans, many Americans would be horrified at that prospect because Singapore, the government uh, effectively controls and runs everything, but there is no interference with the making of money. In other words, it's, it's probably a purely capitalist force in the, in the purest sense of the word. But the government's not going to interfere with you as long as you don't break any laws. Well, that's Confucianism. That's culturally Chinese. The Chinese on Taiwan, the Chinese inside China can agree on that. That's why uh, President Xi's timeline for 2047 being the year when the two would be reunified into one nation was acceptable to everybody. Because the assumption was between now and then, we are going to grow ever more closely together. You know, back in the early part of this century, I was, I went to a war game and it was all connected with what was happening out in events in China and the, the off the coast of uh, Taiwan and Korea and Southeast Asia. And what was very funny is we learned that the Chinese bankers on Taiwan had moved all of their holdings to the mainland for safety. And of course, when the crisis ending ended, they moved their holdings from the mainland back to Taiwan. <laughs> I mean, who are we kidding? What do you, what, what yeah. do we think we're doing? This is, this is nonsensical. The other thing is that everybody is against this idea of going to war with China over it. Koreans want nothing to do with it. They, they don't want to talk to us about it. They've got their own problems and they want Chinese goodwill because they're sitting across from this dying state that is a hazard to everybody in the region, North Korea. Then you have the Japanese. They're not interested in going to war with China right now. They have so many interests in China, so many factories being built, so many production facilities, it would be catastrophic for them. And vice versa. The Chinese have now opened their markets to Japan. They never did that before. Xi has done that. The Japanese are exporting food. They're exporting all sorts of critical items to China. You're not going to get a war there, frankly speaking, unless we start it. Uh, and I guess that's my confusion as someone that's, like I said, never been in the military. Why, why is it that these people want to start those things? And like you said, everybody else has their own problems. Korea has their own problems. 
the Korea, North Korea, South Korea have their own problem. We have our own problem here too, right? Our problems, <laughs> plural, right? Um, yeah. you know, our southern border is porous. That's a problem, right? I mean, the, the, the wokeness in our country, you, you'll talk maybe in a little bit about this in the military, right? We have these issues across the country. People don't want to work. Inflation's high. Crime's high. Why is it that we can't just focus on America first and then worry about everything else after that? Well, that's, uh, that was Donald Trump's view, obviously. I think right. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. feels the same way. He's much more concerned about what's happening here, and he knows that there is no immediate existential military threat against the United States from China. He also knows, and, and just as Trump does, that we can deal with the problems that we have with China. Uh, you don't have to go to war with someone in order to curb their influence. And that was... Trump's argument when he was in office, we can manage the Chinese issue. We can level the playing field. There are things that we can do. And I thought Lighthizer, Lighthizer was uh, brilliant uh, in the negotiations concerning trade with the Chinese. And had we stayed on that track, that would have helped us enormously. But at the same time, you know, we're paying no attention to the Chinese that are in our laboratories, in our universities, in our, uh, you know, industrial base. We have thousands of Chinese men, single men, coming into the United States every day from, uh, you know, Mexico, right through this porous border. By the way, we think we had 20,000 Russians last year. I don't know how many Russians are coming this year. Right. The, the point is we don't know anything about these people. And I'm not saying that these are bad human beings. I think a lot of these Chinese, frankly speaking, have gotten into trouble with the Chinese government. And they're here because they're escaping prosecution at home. Now, I don't want to go into the issues of why they're being prosecuted, but I think a lot of them were caught up in the shadow banking system, which President Xi has really, really cracked down on. Xi's principal focus in China is on corruption inside the country. It's overwhelming. And he's trying to hold that society together. He's got 1.4 billion people. You really think he wants anybody else? That's insane. Of course not. The problem is that we're not paying attention to any of these things. We have no, we no longer have, strictly speaking, the rule of law in the United States. And if you talk to anybody that's come to the United States in the last 50 years, the first thing they say is, Oh, I came here because this is a great place to do business because you have the rule of law. If uh, you try to do business in my country, you have to bribe everybody. And that's virtually everywhere else in the world except most of Northern Europe, North America and, and parts of Asia, but not all of it. And as a result, that's why people are coming here, but we're destroying that. We're creating the problem that, that others have and it doesn't need to exist here. So no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think the American people just look at the American people. What do they know about Ukraine? How many of them could find it on a map? And yet we're very close to being dragged into that war. I'll be interested what comes out of Vilnius because our supposed NATO allies, Lithuania and Poland, want to send troops into Western Ukraine. And I can tell you that if they go into Western Ukraine, the Russians will see them as a Trojan horse for NATO, and they will be under attack. And then we'll see a different Russia emerge, even more powerful. I think they will mobilize on the national level for for an all-out war. I don't think we want that, and I don't think it's necessary. So I, I'm hoping that more sober-minded people will prevail at Vilnius, but that is why right now about 300,000 Russian troops are sitting in reserve waiting to pounce because they want to see what happens as a result of this NATO summit. So you're right. We need to focus on what's happening here. I, I listen to all these commentators. Oh, well, we have a demographic problem. We have this problem, that problem. First, close the border. Second, restore the rule of law. Third, give everybody whatever it is, 90 days, 60 days, you decide what it's going to be. Anybody who is in this country illegal, illegally, they have 60, 90 days to get out. If they register on the way out with us, then we will promise to consider them seriously for legal entry in the future. But if they don't register with us, then they'll be criminals, and we will treat them as such. We've got to do that. And then you've got to go into the cities. And I'm not even sure the police departments have the wherewithal to do what is required. So that's another question that we're going to have to answer is, are there areas where we will absolutely have to consider martial law in order to put an end to the violence and the criminality? It may be the case. 
All of these things are far more important than anything happening anywhere beyond our borders today. Those things are existential for us. If we don't address them, we could go under. Let me ask you about the border because that that's an important issue to me. I, I lost two brothers in 2009 and 2013 to drug-related suicides because of drugs coming, most likely coming from that border, right? Right. Would you be, you know, uh, would you approve the military going down there and shutting down that border? Is that something you'd approve? Is that even allowed? I mean, what can we do to shut that border down at this point? From 1848 until 1948, the United States Army controlled not just the Mexican border, but also patrolled the, the northern border with Canada. <clears throat> we had large numbers of cavalry regiments that existed for that purpose. They were essentially constabulary formations whose job was to secure the borders, especially on Mexico. You go back to the First World War, before the First World War, you find that every every major uh, name that you remember from the Second World War, Eisenhower, Patton, Wainwright, uh, MacArthur, everyone served on the Mexican border. People don't seem to understand that. That was an open sore. That has always been a problem, and we had to control it. Today, it is, of course, worse than it's ever been because we've seen this drug trafficking and illegal human trafficking weaponized against the American people. So absolutely, I would pull all the troops out of Poland and Romania and Moldova and anywhere in the Baltic littoral uh, immediately and send them to the southern border of the United States. And we should have those forces there until we have barriers in place. And the reason for this is because the federal border police are overwhelmed. They are, they'll tell you that. They'll be very honest with you. They don't have the firepower. They don't have the intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance assets. They're dealing with drug cartels that are better armed than they are and much more sophisticated with their ISR than ours. So why why are the people in Washington disinterested in stopping this? I mean, if anybody in your audience has not seen this film, Sound of Freedom, they need to go see it because that's the tip of the proverbial iceberg when it comes to human trafficking. It's, yep. a, it's a tragedy on a scale that should not exist. Would you use the military to attack cartels? Well, first I would use it to close the border. One of yep. the things that worries me about the people that are in Washington is when it becomes politically popular to take a position, they take it without thinking. Yep. Before you wage war on the drug cartels, close the border. Right. You're going to have, you're going to have conflicts with them on the border. You're going to have conflicts with them at sea. Stop sending the Coast Guard to the Persian Gulf and, and the South China Sea. Bring the United States Coast Guard back. Put them into our coastal waters where they belong. Let's get control of our ports. It's not just people coming in over land. People are coming through the major ports, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego. Same thing in the East Coast. We've got to get control of these things. If we don't, it's, this will kill us. I think that's becoming increasingly obvious. It's sort of like ignoring a cancer in your body and saying, well, I'm treating it, but it's still spreading. Well, it'll stop. No, it's not going to stop. It'll kill you. That's what's happening to us on the border. So, yes, absolutely. That's where the U.S. Army ought to be right now. And and people that say, oh, well, they're not trained for that. That's nonsense. I spent years on the border with Czechoslovakia and East Germany when I was a young officer in the first of the first cavalry and the second cavalry. I patrolled those borders. I know exactly how it's done, and so did the soldiers and sergeants, lieutenants, captains, warrants who were with me. That's something we can do. We have also put people on the borders of other countries. I was on the border again after 1991 when Desert Storm ended. I was up on the Iraqi border doing exactly the same thing, conducting security operations. We know how to do this, and we have much better technology today than we've ever had. So getting this done and getting it done effectively is something we can do quickly. So, again, this is not hard. This makes sense. This is in the national interest. Why is no one in Washington demanding that it be done? I've interviewed Sheriff Mark Daniels in Cochise County, and he's told me, we've tried. They don't want to hear it. They don't listen. They don't ask for advice. And and that, to me, is what's so sad about where our country is right now. If I I was leading the country, me personally – 
I, of course, would go and get the advice of my generals, get the advice of my police, get the advice. Of course you would. I I own a business. I do that in my business. If my staff is upset, I ask them what's going on. Why is there an issue? And I try to get to the bottom of that. It just seems that our government has no interest in that as it stands in 2023. That is, they just have no interest in finding out the problems and solving them. Well, the reason is this. Find out where the money goes. Right. Who owns the hill? The hill responds to donors. Right. The donors own the hill. What do the donors want? Do they want cheap labor? Do they want children illegally smuggled into the United States and sold and then killed? Uh, I guess so. Uh, Because the money seems to indicate that that is the preference. We're going to keep the borders open. We're going to tolerate the criminality. And there are far too many people in the United States who say, well, you know, it's really not a problem for me. You know, I live, uh, you know, right outside Kansas City or or I live uh, in a nice place uh, up in uh, Albany, New York, or I live uh, on the outskirts of Seattle. It's not my problem. They're wrong. It is their problem. And the problem that you described with the drugs is reaching them now and harming their families, too. It's time to wake up. But we're not going to get much action out of the people that are in the Senate and the House who are ultimately responding to donors. Every single state is a border state, in my opinion, right now, based on what we're dealing with, whether it be people or drugs or whatever it is, right? Um, two quick questions, and I'll, then I'll leave you today. Um, you see wokeness everywhere. I mean, in the Netherlands, I just <clears throat> saw Miss Netherlands was actually Mr. Netherlands. Um, I guess I'm a little confused at why this is happening all over the world. But what's concerning to me is that we hear, and you would know this more than I would, that it's happening inside of our military. And that scares the hell out of me personally. Well, the military is the first place the left wants to go to render it largely innocuous and incapable. And I think they're doing a very fine job of it. Uh, it, the, The military is separate from society for a reason. It has to adhere to a standard of behavior and discipline that is much different from what is expected in the civilian workplace. What has happened over the last 30, 40 years is an attempt to make the civilian workplace and the, the military place of duty the same. When you do that, you destroy the military. And I think the left is comfortable with that. Uh, there's also the misguided notion that if you throw enough money at something, you can buy defense. Well, you know, war is always a matter of flesh and blood. It's also a matter of organization, leadership, training, discipline, because you're asking large numbers of people to stand up and effectively be shot at. That takes a certain degree, not just a moral and physical courage, but discipline. That's the kind of discipline that, frankly, no longer exists in most of the U.S. military because we're catering to all of these strange aberrations of people that want to be recognized. You know, exceptions don't make rules, but with the left, exceptions make the rules. You know, they'll point to one woman who is uh, the Jim Thorpe of uh, the female species and say, see, she can do everything. Therefore, women should be everywhere. This is the sort of stupidity that gets you into trouble and leaves you with a military organization that's in shambles. I think it is in shambles right now. And, of course, as I tell people, there are 44 four-stars on active duty right now. You've got to stop and think about that. 44 four-stars for what? 1.1 million. Now, in 1943 and 44, when we had 12.2 million under arms, we only had seven four-stars. Yet we managed to our way through the Second World War very successfully. What are we doing with 44 four-stars? Anyone with any experience in business would look at that and say, that's useless, corrupt overhead. Get rid of it. Cut it immediately. That's part of the problem. The military itself is being corrupted by the same kinds of influences. So at some point, one of two things will happen. We will send the military somewhere, and it's going to be defeated. Not yep. not defeated over many years very slowly, as we've seen in Vietnam and, and subsequently uh, since 2001. We're talking about battlefield defeat that costs us thousands of casualties. That's one way to change things. The other thing is to come in get control of the government, 
And then the person who's the commander in chief takes harsh measures and applies them, which means that you simply clean out the senior ranks. You, you effectively acknowledge that you're going to have to make the force smaller in order to fix it and make it better. And that's happened many times in history, many, many, many times. In 1922-23, after the Russian Civil Wars ended, Lenin reduced the Red Army, which was at 5.5 million, down to 600,000. And at that point, the Soviet Union controlled one-sixth of the world's landmass. And people said, oh, my God, you can't do this. Very unhappy people, lots of unhappy people, because they'd been in the war. They wanted to be rewarded. That force of 600,000 then was subjected over time to reorganization, modernization, new leadership rose, and so forth. This happened in Germany. It's happened many, many times, many places. We're going to have to go through something like that. And again, I think that's another reason why people on the Hill, for personal reasons, because they've enriched themselves as a result, are very happy to keep conflict anywhere going as long as they can. I mean, defense industries are are flush with cash. The politicians that support them are flush with cash. And then there are lots of people employed by these industries. All of them are benefiting. Now, what does that do for the larger population? I don't think it does much for the United States as a people in most cases, but that's where we are. And remember, we're back to the question of where does the money go? And the reason people hated Donald Trump so much was that he threatened the money flow. He was going to disrupt it and stop it. What scares me is this idea that love wins is what the left portrays everything, right? You just got to love, right? The problem is, is that Putin doesn't love people like us, right? Xi doesn't love people like us. Um, you know, that that's where I, I get a little bit frustrated with, and not just politicians, with anybody that votes that way, right? Just, just it's common sense. Love never wins like that, right? Especially when you're on a battlefield. You know that better than anybody. Love will never win on that end. Um, last question for you. You had said some things a couple weeks ago or last week, maybe that you believe that there won't be a 2024 election. I want you to expand on that, but I also want to ask this with that. Donald Trump is dominating the polls. I know they're early, but he is dominating the polls for the Republican primary. They're throwing everything that they can at him indictments, you know, uh, sexual assault stories, everything, right? I fear for that man's life. I really do. And, and I, I, I hope, I hope that our country would never stoop to that level and do something like that. I fear for Donald Trump's life because I think they will do anything that they can right now to get rid of him. Well, I think that's true and they're doing it at the right. same time. I think the uh, engines are revving up to go after uh, Robert F. Kennedy. Yep. Uh, he is now also a target. And that's going to become more the case in the weeks and months ahead as it becomes clear that, quite frankly, he's he's preferred by almost everybody in the Democratic Party over the people that would otherwise end up there. He's, he's a real person. Yeah. Now, the problem with the election is as follows. What I said was that I'm concerned that we may not reach that cycle. I'm concerned that things could interrupt it. And I had a discussion at the time with uh, uh, Patrick Bet David, who put forth this hypothesis about Biden resigning, which I think is a very real possibility. I mean, the man is over 80 now. This is ridiculous. He has no business being president. Uh, I'm one of these people that really believes we need younger men, frankly, younger, young blood, men and women to come into government. But unfortunately, we don't seem to be getting there very quickly. And uh, as a result, Biden steps down. Who comes in next? I think that you could have a real succession crisis in the United States because people do not have any faith or confidence in uh, Kamala Harris. And then the question is, who else comes along? Uh, I, I don't know. And then the, the other the other thing that people are reluctant to say in, in some settings is it what makes you think that anybody on the right could win an election anymore? Where's the evidence for clean, fully fair and, and uh, honest elections in all of the so-called blue states? I mean, I grew up in Philadelphia. I can tell you there hasn't been a clean election in that place for 50 plus 60 years. Uh, it's, it's, you know, these big cities are impossible to deal with because you, they're one party states. So the corruption is institutionalized. So how can you have an election and win it? I I don't know. Unless people are willing to address the uh, election integrity question, 
between now and, and the next election, I fear for the country. You would hope that all of these people who are constantly harping on democracy, 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 would want to be serious and, and do something about it. But I haven't seen much evidence for that either. I'm going to put Colonel Douglas McGregor on the spot right now. If you had your choice in a fair election, it's a it's a fair election. Votes are counted properly. They're not getting mailed in and thrown in boxes and garbage bags and truckloads of things going on. If you had a fair election tomorrow, well, let's call it 2024, November of 2024, who is your Republican candidate and who do you believe will win the election in 2024? Well, right now, uh, there doesn't seem to be anyone on the horizon on the Republican ticket uh, other than Donald Trump. I mean, I know people are pushing DeSantis. I know that Mr. Soros likes DeSantis, uh, which should raise serious concerns in the minds of any traditional conservative uh, Republican or Democrat, for that matter. So I, I suppose it would be Donald Trump, and that's why I agree with you. I'm very concerned about his security and his survival as well. I, I think very highly of Robert F. Kennedy. It would be ideal if he rose to become the candidate on, on the Democratic Party because he is a traditional conservative American Democrat. Yep. Uh, he's the sort of person I grew up with when I was a young man in Philadelphia, and all of my neighbors were Democrats. They were all patriots. They were all good people. They loved the country. They went to Vietnam and fought. They did everything that they were asked to do. So... You know, my personal preference would be for a, a new party. And somebody said, Doug, you don't want a third party. You want a, a party other than the uniparty. And I think there's a lot of, lot of truth in that statement because I think there are lots of people who like RFK and lots of people who like Trump who, if they worked together, unified into something new, would sweep this crowd in Washington out of power. I, I totally agree with you. I, I think I absolutely agree with you, too. At some point, we do need fresh blood on both sides, right? Both sides at this point are are loaded up with people that have been in Washington for decades and decades and decades, and that's unhealthy, I believe, too. They don't actually portray what younger voters want either at times, and I think that's not good for anybody. Um, Colonel Douglas can I, say one, can I say one yeah. last thing? Yeah. You know, you know I don't know uh, if if you follow him. But Nassim Taleb is one of my favorite people. And Nassim Taleb uh, spoke recently and talked about the use of monetary policy to solve serious economic problems and why that has no chance of working. And I think he's right. Yep. He also points to the disconnect. On the one hand, rising interest rates. On the other hand, no reduction in quantitative easing. In other words, we're continuing to print money at will. These things cannot go on forever. And now we have de-dollarization. We're looking at the BRICS plus 40 at the moment who are signing on to go to a new currency that is pegged to gold. Gold to fiat currency is, which is what we use, is uh, sort of like garlic to a vampire in a bad horror movie. Yep. Uh, the, the point is there are too many things lurking out there that could bring down everything suddenly. Yep. You have the Ukraine war, Ukraine collapses. It's, you know, we have something we can't manage, something we never anticipated. The situation could get out of hand there. We know there's still a potential for collision with, with U.S. forces, which we don't want and the Russians don't want. Add that to the description that I just gave you for the financial setting and the economy. Look at the border. Look at the criminality. Look at the rule of law. Frankly, I can't imagine why anyone would want to be president at all. There is no good news there. And whoever becomes president will have to face the American people and say to them what Churchill told the British in 1940. I have nothing to offer you but blood, sweat, and tears. Because that's where we're headed. Yeah, I think for me, the reason that I'm a Donald Trump voter, and I'll be the first to admit that, is because I, I his messaging fit for me, right? Somebody that loves their country, that cares about their country. I feel a serious lack in that over the last two and a half years. 
every move we make as a nation right now doesn't show that we love our, our country and our citizens. It's we love everybody else's citizens and countries, right? Putting billions of dollars in Ukraine right now while we have an open border and hundreds of thousands of people dying from fentanyl overdose and drug overdose, that that's not America first to me. And that's why I love that movement. I will believe in that movement. I hope that movement continues well after Donald Trump is around. Um, but I think you said it perfectly before about, you know, these people follow the money. Money does not show that you love your country. Money shows that you're greedy. And I think that's where we're at right now. Michael, I can't argue with you. I, I, I appreciate Colonel Douglas McGregor spent almost an hour with us. I really appreciate your time. I hope to do this again sometime. A uh, lot of great knowledge today. Okay. Super, my friend. God bless. I appreciate it. Thanks so much.